0: we 're talking about truthfulness today. have you heard the old story about the pastor who was visiting in the nursing home and you know it 's one of those uh, not quite nursing homes, but one of those places where the nursing home has a has a, a living room, a kitchen, and a bedroom, and a ba- you know it 's one of those kind of things and This was a very very, very elderly lady, and he went in to visit her and You know, the introductions and the how you do's and all that. He sat down on her couch, and she asked him, you know, it's a hot day outside. It's a summer day. Would he like something cool to drink? He said, yes, I would love something cool to drink. So she got up, and it took her quite a while to get to the kitchen, and she stayed in there a long time. It was close to lunchtime, but he had not had lunch, and he was noticing on the coffee table a bowl of peanuts. And he thought, you know, I'll have just a few. So he had a couple of of peanuts, and she took longer than... He thought and he ate a few more, and she kept delaying. He ate a few more, and pretty soon all the peanuts were gone. And by about that time, she came in with the cold drink, and they sat down, and he drank drank his iced tea, and they were conversing, and guilt began to creep up you know here he had he had taken advantage of her absence had eaten all of her peanuts she's an elderly you know widow lady living by herself maybe shouldn't have done that and should he confess should he not you know he's the pastor how would it look and so he began to question and wonder all of these things and so finally before the end of the visit he apologized he said dear Betty I am so sorry but when you were in the kitchen a while ago I took advantage of your absence and I ate Of your peanuts in the little jar, in the little little dispenser right there on the coffee table. She said, Oh, Pastor, don't worry about that. Since I've lost my teeth, I can't eat the peanuts anymore. I just suck off the chocolate. (laughs) I know you've heard that before, but you know, I've been in ministry long enough to know that those old jokes. 30 40 years ago many of you have not heard them (laughs) so they can be resurrected so to speak I don't care how many times you tell it it's funny and it's gross at the same time isn't it I mean it's just gross to think that he ate those things And it was after the fact that he realized I shouldn't have eaten those things We do a lot of things when we're hungry don't we But the point I want to make is this that even pastors sometimes Struggle with integrity with honesty and with truthfulness. We all do. We all have a condition of the heart called depravity. And in that depraved condition that we have, we were born with it, we are we are naturally prone to either embellish the truth or to cover up the truth or to tell partial truths. Or to tell things in certain ways that we might mislead, misguide, and misdirect people. Sometimes it's unintentionally, sometimes it's intentionally. Guys, if your wives ask you this morning, Do I look thin in this? What did you say? You know what I'm saying? We choose opportune times in which we're going to remain silent about the truth, or we might then excuse ourselves by telling white lies in order to keep ourselves out of trouble with our ladies, right, men? Right. Ladies, how many times have you sat next to your husband watching something on television and he said, Would you like to watch something else, dear? No, honey, this is fine. But if you really told the truth you'd say you know this thing stinks this is a guy movie i want to watch hallmark channel something like that you know take it off this sports thing or whatever you know sometimes we tell our children certain things and we promise them things don't we And we have good intentions of fulfilling those promises, those expectations that we have raised for our children, and yet in speaking to our children, yes, I promise we will do such and such. There are times in which we are not able to do such and such, and we have to teach our children the valued lesson of disappointments, which is hard for children to accept. And you've seen them in the grocery lines throwing fits when they've anticipated and expecting something positive and they have been denied that which they expect to receive. Children have a hard time taking disappointments. We're talking the other day with a, with a father who so, said, well, I never promised my children anything. And then I counteract with that. Well, then how will they know that promises are okay and that our heavenly father has promises for us? And as fathers, they need to learn that sometimes our words with the best intentions can be fulfilled, but yet sometimes they're not always fulfilled. We make vows, we make commitments, we make what the Bible calls oaths many times in relationships that we have, and many of them are well-intended, but sometimes those oaths, those promises, those those, those I wills, you know, just sometimes are, are, are efforts on our part to appease someone or to to gain an advantage over someone or to cover up partial truths or expectations that they may or may not have and so we have a tendency all of us I think is to is to not tell the truth 100% all the time right right come on right look at your neighbor and say he's talking about me and you he's talking about all of us We all have a problem with truth, and all of us in here this morning are liars. Everyone in here is a liar. I came to church today, and what did you get out of the message? The pastor told me I was a liar. I'm never going back to that church again. Well, we all, in fact, fail to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Do we always say what we mean, and do we always mean what we say? And so Jesus understands that we have a heart condition called depravity, and he knows that we live in a, in a depraved culture, in a culture that actually encourages us to lie. I mean, it does. I got in the mail the other day this, this flyer from this, this, uh, uh, this car dealership that promised me that I had the winning key to a certain car. if I would come down there and use that key to get in my car, I could drive away in my car. I looked at that and I just laughed. My wife, who believes in miracles, thought like that, thinking, well, maybe you have the winning key. I said, No, it's not the winning key. What do they want? I already know that what they know. That woman would come down there like an idiot, try the key, it's not the one, and they're gonna try to sell me a car. Right? So I'm skeptical. We in America are skeptical advertising i mean we have a a, a a network that on the 10 o'clock news they have a deal in which they try out products that have claims to see if the claims are true or if they're false and 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 you and i when we see these things on the television we go yeah right because what they're advertising seems too good to be true we are a skeptical culture why we have already anticipated and expect people not to tell us the truth politicians are they truthful or untruthful we have a president who promised us nearly what six years ago that we were going to get out of afghanistan he promised that we were not going to be at war in afghanistan where he elected guess what we're back in afghanistan and i don't care what they call it or identify we're at war with isis and where are they in afghanistan We are a skeptical people. We automatically think and expect politicians to lie, don't we? Especially when they're trying to get elected. Then when they're trying to get reelected, they normally cover up their lying with what we call excuses as to why they were not able to perform their promises. And we, we, we are a skeptical group of people, and when we come to the church, when we come to the body of Christ, we would expect, we would hope that there would be nothing found but truth. But many times, too often, because of our depravity, even though we're Christ followers, there's less, if not the same amount of untruthfulness in the church. And we, we say to have believed in the truth, which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We say that we follow the truth. We say that we proclaim the truth. But yet, do we, do we say the truth all the time? Are we truthful in all things all the time? And the answer to that is no. And Jesus is addressing that in our text this morning. So I want us to take a look at Matthew chapter 5 beginning with verse 33 and I want us to see what Jesus has to deal in this attitude about truthfulness. There is an an attitude here about truthfulness. This is integrity, it is sincerity. It means I am being truthful in the fact that I am being sincere in what I am telling you. There's no guile, there's no pretense, there's no cover up, there's no an attempt to say something so I can manipulate you or use you. I'm being sincere in what I'm saying and I'm speaking with integrity because i mean what i say and i say what i mean jesus is challenging those of us who are his disciples today to live with that kind of integrity with that kind of sincerity all the time is it possible no yet it should be our objective our goal to be those kinds of people and when we recognize and realize you know what in this conversation i haven't been totally truthful which we were up here a while ago talking and i, I made a statement i said well i think i remember it that way but let me retract i'm not quite sure then i mark while ago because i remember it this way but sometimes we think what i perceive to be true is true no perceptions are not truth perceptions are perceptions and sometimes we tell perceptions as if they were truth sometimes we don't perceive correctly I had a poster when I was a student pastor in my office. It was a a, a poster of a shaggy dog that had hair over his eyes and a caption beneath it says, I see better with my heart. Because the reality is that what we often see with our human eyes is not always perceptive of the truth. We're clouded, we're confused, we're prejudiced, we bring our own interpretations into the mix in order to perceive something to be reality and truth. And yet we would die on that reality and truth as if it were true. But many times if we're not careful, we can be dead wrong. And so what does Jesus say about all that? Well, notice what the scripture says. The scripture says in verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Notice in the first phrase of that text, there's a communication issue here. And in this communication issue, we hear that they have heard. There has been something that has been taught Someone has stood up and they have proclaimed the truth as truth. And the reality is, we're going to learn from Jesus' words what they perceived or what they applied or what they concluded to be the truth was, in fact, not true. It was not God's truth. But they had heard this to be true, it had been taught. Not only had it been taught by the religionists, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not in church settings or Bible studies or in the synagogues, it was taught there, but it was then truth that has now been transposed or transformed into the lives of the people that were practicing this falsehood. They perceived it to be true because they heard it that it was truth and they they, they they prefaced this truth by saying it was founded on the word of God. They took the preacher or the prophet or the spokesman at his word and now they have transferred that truth into applied reality and they are living out this text in their lives and they are in fact living out sin rather than living in righteousness. And here we have this transfer of this so-called truth that is not really true. It's not the proper application or identification of truth. So it's been communicated. Notice in this communication, there's been a covenant. There's been a vow. There's been an oath. There's been a promise that has been made. Notice that he says in the text, you shall not swear falsely. Now it doesn't say here, don't swear, but it says don't swear falsely. The word "swear" here simply means to make an oath. That's what it means. Do not make an oath under false pretenses. Do not make an oath in regard to to camouflage the truth or to to, to gain an advantage over someone else. It, it has an intention here of, of of a lack of integrity on the part of the one that is speaking the oath because they know as they are speaking it that they are not speaking truth. They are not expecting themselves as they are making this promise of this individual to even live up to what they're promising to fulfill the oath, to oblige to the commitment. And so they're just speaking it because it's something that they want this other person to hear. For some reason they want to gain an advantage over them, and so they're simply speaking this. And in order to sort of masquerade the truth from untruth, they are swearing by Jehovah. And so that that oath, basically, if you swear by God, then therefore it must be something that is legit. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And so if you take a look at this whole concept of oath, you see in Exodus chapter 20, this is exactly sort of a paraphrase of what God gave Moses in the Ten Commandments. He says in the Ten Commandments, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. People think that this means you're not to use God's name in vain. You're not to say God blank. I don't think you ought to do that But what is he talking about here Not taking the name of the Lord in vain Well take a look at Leviticus 19 12 You shall not swear by my name falsely And so profane the name of your God I am the Lord In other words when you're making a promise When you're making an oath Don't put your hand on the Bible And swear that this oath you will fulfill This promise you will commit to This thing that you're agreeing to Will become true Don't do that falsely Don't do that quickly Don't do that without considering the cost Don't do that without a firm Solid intentional commitment To then fulfill that which you are seeking To promise to this individual Interesting if you take a look At the the line of succession of the things That Jesus talks about in attitudes He talks about what was the first attitude I ask what was the first attitude Come on Anger you guys have slept since then what was the second attitude huh retaliation got a young adult awake over here retaliation we dealt we kind of skipped down to that because that was children's sunday we couldn't deal with with what what the next text was was lust on the next day so we went to retaliation then we talked about lust we talked about then marriage or the hardness of heart And now he follows with this whole thing called oath, with an oath, with a commitment, with a promise, with a covenant. It's kind of interesting that he talks about, you know, these things kind of in succession because they kind of follow one after the other. And so he's saying, as a result of what I have just said, make sure that you do not swear falsely. Don't swear falsely. Why? Notice what it says. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sung. The covenant is through the oath, but the commitment then is to do what you've promised. When you make a promise, when you make a commitment, when you say, I will do something, you must fulfill it if you make an oath or a promise or a commitment. Why? Because you shall perform to the Lord what you have sown. Notice the duty. The duty is to perform what you have said you're going to perform. There's something that we have promised to do, so therefore, when we gave our words or our word that we would do it, we must then in our best ability to make sure that it becomes reality. We must do it. How are our children going to learn to trust God if they can't trust their parents and what we say? How can our spouses know to have the confidence and the assurance in the relationship if we're not fulfilling our commitments on that day that we walked down the aisle and stood before family and friends and committed to be true to them for life? That was an oath, wasn't it? A covenant, a vow, a promise? How do, we, how do we live as believers? If we as disciples of Christ don't say things that we're going to do things and promise things and commit to things and vow to things that we don't do them, you would think that we should trust Christians. You know, sometimes the most leery places to go to find somebody to work on your home is the Christian yellow pages. Because not all of those people in there are Christians. You're skeptical, aren't you? You know better. And so there's an expectation here, a duty to perform. And notice the direction of the performance, that we are to do it as unto the Lord. There are times when we make commitments to each other that when I make a commitment, a promise, a covenant, or an oath to this person, I don't do it unto them. I do it unto the Lord. Why? Because if I don't fulfill my promise to them, it affects my relationship with God. I can't go around promising things to people and not fulfilling those promises, those covenants, those oaths, those expectations, and yet walk in harmony and fellowship with God. It just doesn't work that way. Because my relationship with my fellow brother and sister in Christ and even unbelievers, the way I deal with them in business and in life will affect my relationship with God. And so the direction is unto the Lord, and the decision is, I must do what I have vowed to do, and I must understand that I have sworn to do that, I have promised, I have committed, I have vowed, I have given my word, and the moment I spoke it, I was then committed to make that happen. It's interesting in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5, it says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pray, pay what you vow. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Take your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 11. Keep the, keep the thing on the screen up there. Judges chapter 11. I know it's a little dark out there and it's hard to read, but if you have an iPad like Brother Gale, it's smart to have that. You have instant lighting, okay? Um. We may provide one of those little things on your head that you can look down. But Judges chapter 11, verse 29. Jephthah. Don't you notice this illustration that I want to use very quickly in Jephthah. Judges chapter 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah. Of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He made a vow to the Lord. God did not require this of him. He stepped up, he stepped forward, and he made a vow unto the Lord. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, in other words, if you will give me victory in battle, Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, from the battle, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up, a burnt offering to you. What's he saying? God, if you'll grant me victory in this battle, when I come home in peace, having won the victory because you gave it to me, as I approach my house, the first thing that walks out of my front door to greet me, I will vow to give it to you. Skip down to verse 34. We see that between then and verse 34, he goes to battle, he wins the battle, he's on his way home in peace and in victory. And then as he approaches, notice verse 34 then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, watch this his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was the only child because her, besides her he had neither son nor daughter and as soon as he saw her he tore his clothes and said alas my daughter you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me for i have opened my mouth to the lord and i cannot take back my vow what did he do he vowed to give the first thing that came out the front door and what was the first thing that came out the front door his only child his daughter who, has, who was unmarried and who had no children. He had no descendants. What was he to do? Renege? Well, he complies. Why? Because he knows making a, a note to God is a very serious matter. You don't promise things to God and they just walk away and think God's just going to go... Oh, never mind. I know you didn't mean what you said. I knew you were in the heat of the moment. I know that was an emotional response. I know that you got caught up in that revival over there and in that decision time and people were making decisions and you just walked down the aisle and you just threw yourself at the altar and committed your all to the Lord and and walked out the door and you really meant it. But after that, you say, you know what? I I can't really afford that. That that cost is too high. That commitment is too great. What God is demanding from me is greater than I can pay. And we expect God to say, you know what? It's okay. God takes our oaths, our vows, our commitments, our promises to each other and to him very seriously. And he expects us to keep them. Let's go back to the text and let's see now, not only the scripture, that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures do not forbid us from taking oaths, but they simply say, when you make an oath, make sure that you understand the cost and the consequences and what it's going to demand from you so that when you make it, you don't, like he says in the end of chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, you seek to build a house and then after you start it, you can't finish it. What kind of person does that, Jesus said? A fool. And so now he then moves to the standard that he is trying to set. There's a new standard here in this text. But I say to you, notice the new standard carries a new authority. I say to you, the old authority, the ancient authority, the generational authority is a generational authority in which they took the, the old traditions and the old cultural settings that were passed down from generation to generation. Jesus is saying, now there's a new sheriff in town. Under the old regime, it was this way, but now, as my disciples, as my followers, here's the new way. Here's the new standard. I now am the authority. I am the great I am. I am Jesus, divine in my nature, co-equal with God. I with God. We say, he says, this is what it is. I, as the new authority, do, say to you, do not take an oath at all. Notice he says there's a new action here. Do not take oath an oath at all well is that what he's saying in the last verse that we're not to take any oaths at all that's not what he's saying because did you know that even god takes vows even god has given us some oaths even god has given us some promises we'll take a look at hebrews chapter 6 because not only did god the father god the son and the apostles give us oaths and promises and and vows but this is just one of many that god gave us in verse 17 so when god desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promises the unchangeable character of his purpose notice he granted it with what an oath god granted it with an oath How could he do that? And why did he do that? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for God to lie. God does not and never will lie. It is contrary to his character and his nature. He is a truthful God, and everything that he says is truthful, and everything that he promises will come to be. Why? Because he is a sovereign God, has the authority and the willpower to make it happen. He is that kind of God. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have what? Strong encouragement. Why would God give us an oath? For encouragement, for hope, for trust, for expectation, to help build strong character in us, to hold fast to the hope set before us. You know, when I was a child, um, we had these things in which we, we, we made we made promises. What, what was this? Pinky what? Pinky swear. And when you made a com- you know, made a promise somebody, you stick your finger out and you go pinky swear, and they put Then you. That's a pinky swear. Or you would say cross my heart, hope to die, stick a. Right. How do you know that? How do you know that? It's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. You see, the practices that have been going on here have been passed down from generation to generation. There was the oral law that was being passed down orally from generation to generation. And inside that oral law, they had a whole section that was designed and and designated just for oaths. And the reason why they had this designation is because it gave you permission to get out of oaths and permission uh, to keep people to their oaths. It was what they used to legislate. In their, in, in, their, in their legislature And you could take somebody to court Based upon a verbal agreement And there were a bunch of loopholes And Jesus says here You've been using a loophole guys You think that you can make an oath And swear by something else And I'm not going to hold you accountable to this But notice what he says But I say to you do not take an oath Here are the examples of kind of oaths That he doesn't want his people to take Do not Take an oath at all, notice, either by heaven, circle the word for, it is the throne of God. Notice in verse 36, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. What they're trying to do is they were trying to say, you know what? I didn't really use God's name in my oath, so therefore I'm not accountable to God. And so I made an oath based upon heaven. And so they had all these loopholes, all these ways of getting out of commitments and promises and oaths. And there was even one guy, for example, he said, you know, if you make an oath by Jerusalem, you can't hold people to it. But if you make an oath facing Jerusalem, then it is an oath that you must keep. See how, see the loopholes? And so it's almost as if here we see in this text that they were doing what we used to do as kids. Remember you used to make an oath? What is that? Your fingers crossed. Why did we cross our fingers? We could say anything we wanted to and promise anything we wanted to, but as long as we had our fingers crossed, they couldn't hold us accountable for that, right? And if you didn't want them to see it, you could hide it behind your back. And then they tried to hold you accountable. Well, I had my hand behind my back and my fingers crossed, so therefore that commitment was not legal. Can't hold me to it. That's what's going on here in Jesus' day. And it was making the courts crazy. And they had all this legislation in order, in order to legislate morality and what wasn't, what wasn't. And there was all these kinds of debates. And Jesus saying, no, that's not true. Let me tell you something. He's saying to them and he's saying to us, if we take an oath, if we take a promise by heaven, by earth, we're taking a promise, a commitment, a vow as the same as if we're doing it in his name. Why? Because he is the creator and the sustainer of what we have vowed upon. And as the creator and the sustainer of earth and of heaven and all of these things that he's mentioned, he's saying by using those things that I'm responsible for, that I'm accountable for, that are mine, you are using my name. Therefore, I'm holding you accountable for that. And it's interesting, he then says, which, in the commentaries, it creates a lot, of, a lot of discussion, and I really like those because I like to really dig. But notice in verse 36, it says, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, this is the inerrant, the infallible word of God. We can make our hair white or black. It's called Clairol. Right, ladies? Don't, don't give us your secret. I know all you 90-year-olds out there have perfectly jet black hair because that's natural. I know that. <laughs> Nobody questions that. But this is before Clairol. <laughs> what he's saying, I believe, by this statement is that you should be careful how you make oaths and promises and commitments and vows because you think that you have the control of your life and you can make things happen by your own power and by your own will, but you can't. Because I alone am sovereign. What we often forget when we make commitments, vows, and promises to, for example, our spouses, though while we stand and we make a promise, a commitment to them, we can't make and keep and fulfill that commitment and that promise on our own. We need an outside resource called God, Christ, and the Spirit. When we commit to be parents to our children, as difficult as that is and as well-intended as we are, we can't keep that promise to them in our own strength, in our own effort. The Bible reminds us of that, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who's greater in you? He. I know you sometimes think, and we have the tendency to believe that what I have, I have in my possession, I manufactured, and it belongs to me, but that's 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 foolishness because what you have and what you possess and who you are and in order to fulfill those promises you can only do that in and through him and his power and his authority through submission and yieldingness to him it is christ doing it in you and through you it is not you doing it on your own Because he is the creator and the blesser and the giver and the sustainer of every aspect of our lives. And we cannot come into any kind of commitment expecting that we ourselves, independently and apart from God, are going to make this commitment a reality. Only with his help and our dependence upon him will that become reality. Because we are flawed people, we are depraved. And we live in a defiant, crooked, untruthful, pagan culture that doesn't honor honesty, integrity, truthfulness, and faithfulness. It just doesn't. And so that's the standard that he sets for us. Let's close within the simplicity of what he's saying. He said, I'm going to make it real simple for you. And I like it when, when Christ does this for me because you know what? My elevator sometimes doesn't go all the way to the top. Does yours? I need it really, really simple most of the time. And he's making it very simple. Let what you say. That word say is an interesting word. It means everything that comes out of your mouth. Everything that comes out of your mouth should be honest, truthful, and spoken with integrity. With no guile, no vile, no intent to to entice, or to be dishonest, or to misguide, or to embellish, or to appropriate, or to give a white lie. Everything that comes out of your mouth must be truthful. And if it's not truthful, it carries consequences. Everything. So be careful, ladies, what you talk about on the phone this afternoon. Be careful when you go to the hairdresser and you're hearing the gossip that's going on. Be careful when you're in the prayer meeting and you're talking about people's needs. Be careful when you're entering into a contractual agreement with someone whether through marriage or a relationship of some kind that what you promise you must fulfill. But every word, I think Jesus is saying here, for a Christ follower, everything that comes out of our mouth, everything, 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 and everything must be truthful, it must be with integrity, and it must be spoken with sincerity. No no guile, no evil. Let what you say. I think it's interesting, the contrast here. First, Jesus said, this is what God says, and this is what I say, and let's contrast that with what God says, <laughs> be simply yes or no yes or no how complicated is that say what you mean and me what you say let it be yes let it be no that's the confession do i look good in this today do i look skinny in this today well (laughs) let it be yes or no try that guys so, you know, the pastor said, I'm supposed, to be a man of, I'm supposed to be a man of integrity. I'm supposed to be a promise keeper. I'm supposed to tell the truth. No. Don't embellish it. Ladies, don't ask it if you don't want the truth. Be careful, guys. It might come back to bite you. Honey, am I a great husband? Do I listen to you the way I should? Am I always attentive? Am I always kind and gentle? See, it can work both ways, right, ladies? Are you with me, ladies? Okay. Anything more than that comes from where? What are the consequences to everything that you say that's more than yes and no? It's evil. When when Satan was in the garden and Adam and Eve came to the garden, we alluded to that last week, back in the early part of Genesis, and he told Eve, God didn't really mean that. He meant this. Was he being truthful? No, he wasn't. He was being partially truthful, but not completely truthful. Why? Why? Because he wanted to mislead, he wanted to misguide, he embellished, he took away from the truth and and, and put the spotlight on where he wanted it in order to trick them and to to bring them away from where, you know, we have to be really, really careful because Satan is the father of lies, and when we lie, we are not only being true to our Adamic or our fallen nature, but we're also giving in to the temptation of being dishonest and anything less than giving 100% integrity to God. We all have that problem. Numbers 32 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And James has a parallel passage to what Jesus says in James five twelve. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes... Be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Did you get on time this morning when you came to work? Yes or no? Were you honest or dishonest in that report? Yes or no? You know, if we're not careful, we'll lie. One of the things I hate about conventions is that whenever you go to a convention, you've got a bunch of pastors who are walking around in open rooms and walking around hallways, and it's like being at a Banny Rooster convention. And uh, what you always find is, there's really several questions that are always asked when you're talking to your pastor buddies or being introduced to a pastor buddy. They say, where is your church? What's the name of your church? Where's your church? And how many do you run? How many do you run? And it's interesting to see pastors... Juggle that truth well we had 3,000 in our church weekly really how many did you have on Sunday morning it's interesting when people want to know how large our church is and I'll talk about our attendance well how many members you have well we have 6,000 members but do we really we only have about 4,500 that are in the computer we have 1,500 we have no idea where they are We've got hundreds of them that are in other churches that have never moved their membership. So how many members do we really have? How many do we actually run on a Sunday morning? Are you talking about an average? Are you talking about my highest attendance Sunday or my lowest? You see, you get into all these what ifs and what ends. And it's easy for pastors to want to impress other pastors by embellishing the truth or telling partial truth but not telling the whole truth. And nothing but the truth, so help you God. But then as we are tempted to lie to each other, I think what I want to focus on as we close is the biggest temptation of all is that we lie to God. Turn real quickly to Luke chapter 9. I want to look at, at, at lying to God. Luke 9, we're going to read this very quickly. Luke chapter 9 verse 57. Why would we in the heat of the moment, in a, in a very emotional time, in a very spiritual time, in a very moving time... The Holy Spirit lead us to walk down an aisle or where we sit or where we stand in a place of invitation and make a commitment to God and then not fulfill our commitment to God. Why would we do that? And it's one word, is called the word excuses. We have become, as Christ followers and as his disciples, a master at giving God reasons, excuses, why we cannot fulfill our commitments to him. I promised to read my Bible every day this week, God, but you know, I just didn't have enough time. Oh, you know how many children I have, God, and you just know how hard it is, and but I just couldn't do that. Or I promised to go to church, you know, more often, but I just never really got into the habit. Or I wanted to attend a small group, life group, life group class, but you know, I just can't find the right one. And Brother Andrew say, there's got plenty enough out there you can't find the right one, then you're not looking in the right place. Or he even said, we'll start one for you, you can't find one. (laughs) But notice the excuses. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. He's making a commitment, a vow, an oath. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's his excuse? Physical comfort. Physical comfort. This man lacked the freedom from being in bondage to the world stuff that he thought in following Christ, he would have to give up some of this world's treasures. Really? Right. At least he understood the cost. Notice the personal confidence of the next excuse to another. He said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Christ invited him to follow me, but he said, "Let me go first and bury my father." And Jesus said to him, "Leave the dead; let the leave the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God." He had a problem with faith. Lord, I will go where you want me to go, but I just don't have the trust or the belief or the faith that if I follow you, you will provide. It's an excuse, because we just learned that God is a God of His word; He doesn't lie, and that He keeps His promises. Verse Sixty-one. Yet another said, after being invited to follow him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This man lacked focus. He could not see that long-term investing pays more dividends than short-term investing. but they're simply excuses excuses that reveal a lack of trust, a lack of faith, and a lack of confidence in God. So here as we close is this question I have for you. How many times in an invitation time like the one we're about to have, you have been moved in your spirit by the Spirit of God to make a commitment, to make a decision, to make a vow, if not an oath, if you please, to God, promising Him that from now on you're going to leave this place and you're going to do such and such. Are you going to transform such and such. Are you are going to... to To yield this, or you're going to confess this, you're going to repent of that, or you're going to implement this. And we've done this in this setting, and we walk out, and we've no sooner gotten into our car that we've already forgotten the vow, the commitment, the promise that we made to God in that invitation time, and we've never fulfilled those commitments to him. I'm convinced that most of us never need to sit in another Bible study to be convicted of things we need to be doing. We just need to go back to things we've already promised God we're going to do and then do those. And we'd be a lot further in our journey as disciples. Because every one of us in here, and myself included, Have sat in a time of invitation And we have been moved by God's spirit And we in his presence have made a decision Only to walk out the door And give him excuse after excuse After excuse after excuse Of why we cannot fulfill What we have promised And yet God holds us Accountable to those promises I would rather we not Make any promises Make any decisions Walk down any aisle kneel at any altar or make any public declaration unless we intend to fulfill it Jesus said unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me don't come to me because there's a cost and there's a commitment and there will be consequences to our decisions let's pray
1: glad you're all here to celebrate the activity of God in our church. We've got two men who have come forward this morning to follow in baptism. First is my friend Bobby here. Bobby came forward a few weeks ago and announced that he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and now wants to follow in believer's baptism. Bobby, have you accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Yes. Yes. All right. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised the newness of life. This is my friend Joe. He also came forward a few weeks ago and announced that he received Jesus Christ as his Savior and now wants to follow in Believer's Baptism. Joe, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Lord Savior of your life? Yes. All right now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life.